Hi, writers. Welcome to our new episode on writing fiction, both novels and short stories. This is Jim Thayer. I have recently added a Patreon button to this to the description of the episodes below. This podcast about writing is and will remain free to listeners, and I'm glad about that. But if you are finding them useful and would like to support the podcast, please consider hitting the Patreon link below and making a donation. And it'd be much appreciated. I want to mention something we can do to get started writing our novel or short story. It's a good idea, but it isn't for everyone. It might not be for those writers who have spent some time creating an outline and have planned out their story, maybe chapter by chapter in an outline, and have done the preliminary work and so are ready to start. But for other writers, maybe we've had an idea for a novel. An idea isn't a plot, but we've thought about it, and now we think we've got something of a plot worked out, but we just haven't started. Maybe we don't know exactly where to begin, or maybe we don't know precisely what happens in the first chapter, or perhaps something else is keeping us from writing. Maybe it's the reluctance to expose our writing skill to ourselves by actually writing. That's awfully widespread. Or perhaps it's a reluctance to undertake what we know will be a year-long project. For some reason, we haven't started writing our novel. Or maybe we haven't started writing the next chapter. How can we conquer this hesitation, this reluctance? Here's a technique, and it sounds simple, but I hope we can give it some thought. It might work. The technique is this. Write one sentence, the first sentence of the novel. That's our goal and our only goal. We have nothing. We haven't started the novel, but we're going to write one sentence. Here I go, typing on a blank screen. This is my first sentence. When Charles Jones stepped on the brake pedal, nothing happened. So we've written one sentence, ten words. Say it's it's not bad. It's action. It's not backstory or explanation. Something big is happening. That's not bad. We've got one sentence. What do we do now? What about the rest of the plot? The things we haven't figured out. Not knowing much about the plot in advance of writing is how many good writers work. For many writers, having one sentence, then two sentences is how they plot their novels. Chris Beatty writes in his book, No Plot, No Problem, quote, The act of writing is a 100% reliable plot forge. It may seem a little scary to leave your story's backbone to chance, but fusing character and setting into an engaging, readable narrative is what our imaginations are best at. Just focus on vivid, enjoyable characters, and a plot will unfold naturally. I'm not recommending that a lot of writers do this. Some of us, including me, need an outline. We like an outline to get started. But we, but there are many wonderful writers who wing it. Uh, Stephen King is convincing uh, regarding this, uh, regarding some writers not needing 
to have plotted in advance, not needing an outline, he says, quote, I distrust plot for two reasons. First, because our lives are largely plotless, even when you add in all our reasonable precautions and careful planning. And second, because I believe plotting and the spontaneity of real creation aren't compatible. It's best that I be clear about this as I can. I want you to understand that my basic belief about the making of stories is that they pretty much make themselves. The job of a writer is to give them a place to grow and to transcribe them, of course. Stephen King continues, I often have an idea of what the outcome may be, but I have never demanded of a set of characters that they do things my way. On the contrary, I want them to do things their way. That's Stephen King on his spontaneous writing. He's not alone. Charles Dickens invented his novels as he progressed through them. Not all writers need a big outline. So instead of a big, maybe an amorphous blob of a plot to think about, we have one thing now to focus on. The second sentence, what happens after Charles Jones's breaks don't work? Well, what happens? We have to focus on it. We type, he gripped the steering wheel so hard his knuckles were white and he pumped the brake pedal again. So now we have two sentences. What should we think about next? Not the whole plot, not the whole chapter, but the next sentence. But first, take a break, go get a Coke. Then, the third sentence. The point here is that for some novelists, maybe you, you don't need an outline and don't need to have spent weeks or months thinking about your plot and organizing an outline and fleshing out the characters. You don't need to worry about the quality of your writing or starting a big project. You only need to think about one sentence. For some writers, the act of writing will start the process of plotting. You write one sentence, and the next one will become clear. Then the next one. If you're having trouble with figuring out your big plot, perhaps you can trust that it'll come to you as you write the novel. In Chris Beatty's words, the act of writing, typing that first sentence, then the next one, is a reliable plot forge. This won't work for some writers who want the benefit of an outline, a clear path for their story. But for many writers who can't seem to figure out the big plot issues and so are reluctant to start, just start. Type that one sentence. I'll bet you look at that one sentence and think, say, that's good. Maybe that one sentence sparkles. Let's see what happens in the second sentence. I'll write one more and see what happens and you'll be underway. The point, if you are having trouble starting the writing of your novel or short story, yeah, I'm going to sound like your mom hovering over the dining room table when you were in high school telling you to write that essay about the exports of Peru. Put something down on your screen, a sentence. Get it down. It'll be wonderful. You'll be underway. I want to talk about dialogue in our story. Dialogue in fiction is fun to read and it's fun to write. 
It's also a workhorse and can, it can do a lot for a story. I'd like to suggest techniques for writing two kinds of dialogue, romantic dialogue and angry dialogue. Readers love both, romance and anger. Dialogue in fiction is most memorable when it's emotional, and romance and anger are emotional. First, let's talk about romantic dialogue. I recently discussed techniques for writing about romance, and I'd like to get more specific and dig deeper here, talking specifically about romantic dialogue, romantic conversation between our characters. You've heard me say before that if your story doesn't have a romance in it, consider adding one. The reason is, readers, even of thrillers and horror, sci-fi, fantasy, detective, historicals, literary, and all other genres, readers like romance in a story. Why? Let me be profound. Romance is good. It's good in real life, and it's good in fiction. And dialogue is a wonderful way to present the romance. A famous example is D.H. Lawrence's Women in Love, where Ursula has a big argument with Rupert, objecting to his cleverness and his lingering affection for Hermione, a, a society lady. She... Th uh, she throws the rings at Ru uh, that Rupert gave her into the dust. Uh, this is the first part of the love scene, and there is much conflict. But over the course of 14 pages of the novel, Ursula and Rupert argue their way into love. It's beautifully done, and it's fascinating. Uh, D.H. Lawrence takes the reader from affection to anger, to love. What, what a journey. So here are some techniques for writing dialogue in a romantic scene. First, often the dialogue doesn't have to be about the romance that is happening right there in front of the reader and in front of the characters. It doesn't have to be on point. My favorite example, and I can't remember, I wish I did, if this is some memory from my younger days, I like to think so, but can't remember. The example, two teenagers are standing on the girl's family's porch, and it's midnight. Both of them are trying to determine in that weird teenage way whether they're going to kiss each other. They both want to. What do they talk about? They don't talk about romance or kissing or hugging. They talk about Mr. Snyder, their algebra teacher, who wears both a belt and suspenders. And they talk about her dog who's looking at them through the window. And they talk, and they drift a little closer to each other and a little closer still. And he brushes her hand and they talk about his dad's car, which is low on gas. And he puts his hand on her shoulder and she drifts in against him. So they kiss. The dialogue hasn't matched their movements, at least not technically. These two teens have avoided the subject in their dialogue that is so weighty right there on the porch. This can be intensely charming for the reader. Many readers have been there in their past, and it'll ring bells with them. Uh, 
Perhaps older characters in our story would be more direct when talking about their attraction to each other, but this not-on-point dialogue when two people in our story are falling in love and revealing it to each other is a terrific technique. Second, and here's the opposite technique, sometimes the dialogue in a romantic scene can be precisely on point about the, the love the characters are experiencing at that moment. <clears throat> this depends on the maturity and directness of the characters you've created. An example is from The Bridges of Madison County, the novel by Robert James Waller. There is a piece of romantic dialogue in the book that was read, it's so good, it was read by Oprah on her show as a powerful expression of emotion. The story is about a man, Robert, who comes into Francesca's life for four days, then leaves. Uh, Francesca has just told Robert why she just can't leave her husband. The book was a runaway bestseller and... Women in particular loved it, and this particular part of the book. Robert Kincaid was silent. He knew what she was saying about the road and the responsibilities and how the guilt could transform her. He knew she was right, in a way. Looking out the window, he fought within himself, fought to understand her feelings. She began to cry. Then they held each other for a long time, and he whispered to you, I have one thing to say, one thing only. I'll never say it another time to anyone, and I ask you to remember it. In a universe of ambiguity, this kind of certainty comes only once and never again, no matter how many lifetimes you live. This is a powerful line. Any woman would like to hear it. And in the bridges of Madison County, they hear it. Why does this scene work so well? Love in this scene is intimate. Here we get to hear, in their dialogue, the intimacy. They reveal things to each other. Maybe they've never said to anyone else in their lives and, and may never say again. The reader's right there with them, listening. It can be powerful, and it can move the reader. Third, don't forget a second emotion that might be present during the romantic dialogue. There can be love and there might be another emotion. In the scene from Bridges of Madison County, Francesca is feeling both love and fear, a good combination in a love scene, the mix of fear and love. There might also be in dialogue we write love and shame maybe love and wonder, maybe love and anger. Um, there's some unresolved issue that gets resolved. Love and regret, love and joy. Love can be shown along with other emotions. Fourth, remember to have our character act in character. You've heard me mention this regarding writing other scenes, such as an action scene. It's true for romantic dialogue, too. Sixteen-year-old Robert, president of the high school chess club who wears orthodontic braces, shouldn't sound like Newland speaking to, e speaking to Ellen in, in Edith Wharton's novel The Age of Innocence. Listen to this. Each time you happen to me all over again. That's Newland. 
Wouldn't it be wonderful to hear that from someone you love? Well, Robert, the high school chess president, likely can't come up with that phrase. Maybe our older character can. Fifth, the reader will be listening to the romantic dialogue. Uh, But during the conversation between your characters, don't forget the other senses. Maybe they are standing next to a lilac bush in bloom. Or she smells as if she's bathed in her mother's Chanel Number 5. Maybe he's a mechanic and can never quite get the smell of grease off himself. Or she owns a printing business and smells of ink. Uh, And we should also remember the sounds during the romantic dialogue, the, the proverbial dog barks, or tree limbs clatter together in the wind. I have a barred owl living near my home, and his hooting at night is a wonderful sound. It's, it's a soothing sound, given that he is a merciless predator. Maybe the aquarium pump is dribbling water, a soft, splashy sound. Maybe they are in an apartment and the couple in the next apartment are loudly arguing while our romantic dialogue is taking place. Wouldn't that be a wonderful contrast? The world is filled with sounds and the reader might hear more than the dialogue between the characters. So we should add some sounds. Sixth, as with Most all dialogue, cut to the chase. Begin at the heart of the conversation between the two. Mentioned earlier is that often the dialogue isn't about love. They're pretending to be interested in something else. But even so, even if that's the case, we should get right to the heart of the conversation. Try to avoid preparatory dialogue and and wind-up dialogue. Seventh, as with most other plot elements, We shouldn't forget cause and effect. A a wonderful, intimate moment between our characters will likely have changed them somehow in uh, subsequent chapters. We should make sure to mention it. Maybe dazzled by love, our, our hero forgets to do much of his work the next day. Let's talk now about angry dialogue. And here's a funny thing. Some of the techniques for romantic dialogue apply to angry dialogue. I've mentioned before, the best dialogue in fiction is an argument. Readers love arguments. Here are some thoughts on how to write arguments. First, just as in romantic dialogue, often the angry dialogue doesn't have to be about the actual cause of the friction. And maybe the dialogue doesn't, uh, the angry dialogue doesn't make a lot of sense. Here's a passage from Michael Doris's novel, A Yellow Raft in Blue Water. The character's mother abandoned her uh, ten years ago, leaving her with a grandmother, and she's angry. Her mother, whose, whose mind isn't all there, is also angry. What makes this scene so good, angry people often don't make a lot of sense, and the things that are said often aren't logical and often don't follow each other closely. The characters are just throwing out things to hurt each other and to defend themselves. The point of view character is Rayona, who is finally taking her chance to blast her mother. I'm so used to being mom's daughter, I defend myself. I meant to get in touch, I say. 
You meant to. You meant to. Mom pulls the sash of her robe tight and ties it in a knot. That's just great. Here I am, sick as a dog, and you're off. I was working at Bear Paw Lake State Park. Having fun, Mom shouts, at some park. But you left first. That's right, blame me. Mom turns to Dayton. It's my fault she walked out on her grandmother, of course. Now, don't get yourself all upset, he says. When you calm down, you're going to be glad to see Ray. I thought something happened to you, Mom screams at me. It's the worst thing she's said yet. A lot you cared. I've got my second wind. You could come for your box of pills from Charlene, but not for me. That stops her. How did you know it was pills? And all the time, here you are, not ten miles away. Don't tell me about leaving. She has no heart, Mom appeals to Dayton. She wants to hurt me, sick as I am. You tried that on Dad, and it didn't work. I'm mad beyond the bounds of what's fair. You're not sick. But of course she is. I see it the minute the words are out of my mouth. In some part of my brain, it has been registering ever since the car stopped. She's ragged, pale. There are new wrinkles in the skin of her forehead, thin lines that stretch like threads above her eyebrows. Her cheeks are hollow, but her waist has thickened. You're just like him, she says to me in a voice tied to a rock, in every way. That is just fantastic dialogue from Michael Doris's novel, A Yellow Raft in Blue River. It's powerful and riveting, just what an argument should be. The reader can hardly turn away. Uh, second, use shorter sentences and paragraphs. The people in an argument might be fairly spitting at each other. They're interrupting. They're cutting each other off. We should use short, punchy sentences. <clears throat> Here's a format technique. Uh, a technique. Here's how to write an interrupted sentence in an argument, how it should be formatted. Let's say that our character, Joanne, wants to say, quote, I'll never live up to your standards because you won't let me, period, end quote. Uh, this one line of dialogue is a tough part of her argument, but Mike doesn't let her get the entire sentence out. He interrupts her after the word because. So this is how the interruption looks on paper. Uh, Joanna said, comma, quote, I'll never live up to your standards because space, period, space, period, space, period, uh, space period, end quote. You don't know, uh, rather, quote, you don't know me at all, Mike said. We should use the four-period ellipsis to show an interruption uh, at the end of a sentence. Uh, a three-period ellipsis is used when the dialogue speaker pauses in the middle of a sentence, such as this, quote, I wonder why she... Uh, space, period, space, period, space, period, space, telephoned me yesterday, period, end quote. Just like in an action scene during the argument, the setting and character should already have been mostly described. We should focus on the dialogue and shouldn't interrupt our, ang our two angry characters with lengthy descriptions of anything. 
I think this is the fourth uh, technique I, I want to mention about arguing uh, dialogue, a dialogue that's argument. Uh, don't use much interior monologue. Uh, when angry, people speak more than they think. They're, they're less filtered. They think less. So interior monologue, which is a character thinking, often isn't needed during an angry confrontation. Angry dialogue, which the reader hears, will be much more interesting than anything a character thinks. And five, anger can occur in, in several ways. It's not always a knockdown back and forth uh, like the one between Rayona and her mother mentioned a minute ago. Angry dialogue might be a slow burn or perhaps a character relies on sarcasm. It, it doesn't always need to be uh, shouting and interrupting. Six, remember to describe Facial, uh, facial expressions and postures during the argument. Are her teeth bared? Uh, does he not have enough courage to look directly at her? I is she bent toward him like a hinge? Are her hands balled into fists? Seven, don't forget cause and effect. A bitter argument will have consequences. Next time our two characters see each other, something likely should have changed between them. The, the argument probably won't have been forgotten, maybe not resolved, or maybe there's forgiving. But we shouldn't forget that in real life and in our fiction, arguments have consequences. So there are some techniques for writing romantic dialogue and angry dialogue. I hope there's more romantic dialogue in your life than angry dialogue. There isn't mine for sure. My email address is jimthayerseattle at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Jim Thayer. Please keep tapping those keys.